Tubals in a China Shop is brought to you by these great companies that are giving us money to let you listen to their stuff. Bullshit, Kyle. We make this show. We make this show. You and me. Tubals in a China Shop is brought to you by us. <laughs> Someone's got to pay the bills, Dan, because it's not our trading. <laughs> <laughs> All right, roll them. You are listening to an entertainment program put together by a company called Financial Ineptitude. Anything said on this show is not an endorsement or professional advice. Would you really want to tell a court of law you were suing us because you thought taking financial advice from two idiots on a podcast put out by Financial Ineptitude was a good idea? Really? Clown hats on your face. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another fantastic edition of Roundtable Square Traders. Joining me for today's option theme discussion is Eric Smolinski from ES Invests, along with Two Bulls Discord member Lucas, and from Eric's Discord, we got Sam H. How's everybody doing today? Good. Great. <laughs> I love Eric's high energy. <laughs> I'm doing good. All right. Before we uh, start peppering Eric here with a bunch of options-related questions, just take a minute here to say thank you to our sponsors and friends over at Manscaped, TradePro, and uh, Orderflow Labs. Manscaped, as everyone should know by now, is the best in men's below-the-waist grooming, but did you know they just launched a line of beard care products? Uh, lucky for you, we have an exclusive offer of 20% off and free worldwide shipping using promo code 2 at manscaped.com. As always, that's the number two. When it comes to institutional quality trading education, look no further than tradeproacademy.com. In our free Discord server, you'll find instructions to take advantage of their discount with them as well. And for all you DGENs who enjoy trading futures, you probably aren't listening to this episode. But if you are, check out the custom tools and studies over at Orderflow Labs because they're fantastic. And also, everybody needs to be following Eric on Twitter at ES Invests and his YouTube channel because he's probably got a bunch of good pedal pumping videos uploaded with this new McLaren. Uh, last but not least, be sure to reach out with your suggestions, corrections, or questions for future guests, or even to request to join one of these roundtables. You can do that via email at twobulls at financialineptitude.com, or you can join that free Discord server where a bunch of amazing people gather to share our struggles and lessons learned. Be sure to have links for all that in the episode description as well. Now that we got all that out of the way, why don't we learn a little bit about today's, uh, I don't know if I want to call you guys beginners. Uh, I think that's, it's kind of fair. Yeah, that's fine. Is that fair? Okay. Yeah. Well, uh. Sam, why don't you tell us just a quick uh, little bit about yourself, how you got started trading? Uh... So sure. Um, so I've necessarily have been trading options or more so long-term uh, options trading more so with leaps uh, for, for the past, I'd say, two years since 2021. Uh, prior to that, I was mostly focused on long-term investments, but just knowing, like knowing how curious I am, I started digging deeper and deeper in terms of understanding the market. Then I found myself looking into options, and then now I'm kind of looking at more so long-term, uh, long-term trades or strategies, more like the coverage strangle and like the leap diagonals. But from time to time, uh, I do dabble with uh, short-term uh, option strategies. Mm, nothing like a good old lotto. <laughs> <laughs> how about how about you, Lucas? Yeah, so. I was first interested when I was like 16. Um, my parents kind of helped pay for this one class that I kind of learned about options and order flow basics. Mm -hmm. But the way that options were kind of first introduced to me were like just more like straight directional plays. And yeah, so from options, I also got into futures learning that they have more leverage, which, you yeah, know, is oh, a good yeah. and a bad thing. But not until recently, I just started kind of getting more into like 
books and the more nitty gritty of options and just kind of learning about, you know, volatility spreads. And, and that's kind of where I'm at now is just asking more and more questions because it kind of seems like the more you know, the more questions you have about options. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's funny too, because like I know with the like think or swim, um, like when I first started getting into options, like you have to get approved for each tier. So like the first thing you can do is naked, like puts and calls. And that's like the riskiest thing you can do. Like to even get to the next step, you have to go to like tier two or tier three, where you can finally start like doing, you know, covered positions or uh, strat- strangles or uh, spreads or calendars or diagonals, those kinds of things. I think it was backwards. Which seems, you're right. Doesn't it seem backwards? No, I think tier like tier one for TD Ameritrade is like cover trades. Oh, okay. So like cover calls and cover yeah, uh, so cash I think, secure puts. Exactly. So I think yeah. tier one is cover trades. It's kind of like what you could do in an IRA. Tier two is when you can start doing spreads, which you can also do in an IRA. And then tier three is uncovered. Okay. Well, the I mean, it always let me do uh, just like naked calls. It's probably because you started at a, at a higher tier or um, something to that nature. I mean, I, I still remember when I first opened up my trading account, literally it was through my mom who had like the worst financial background on planet Earth. So all I did was lie to them. Yeah, I know. I think we all Explained, did to get approval. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I just essentially at the time of filling this out, I was trading options for like two months and you would have thought that I was Ray Dalio, Savant, options trader, because I told, yeah, I just lied on all those forms. Because <laughs> realistically, it's not even that I wanted to trade, you know, those strategies necessarily, but I also didn't want to be artificially constrained. Makes sense. Well, let me, uh, let me kick off the discussion then with the first question, which is a lot more generic, but like why even trade options to begin with? Why not just stick with, uh, you know, stocks, options? tend to expire worthless for most of the time. They seem to have a lot more risk involved with them. Or they can, depending, I guess, on what strategies you do. They're very complicated. Like, what's, yeah, the, what's it, the benefit? Yeah, it's it's a good question. I'm actually really glad that I wrote that in and you vocalized that, that it. That I took so, it for you? Yeah. yeah <laughs> That's what a good host does. <laughs> the reason why I, I wrote this in, and I think it's a, a perfect preamble to the conversation is, I think traders get too binary. I say that all the time and I continue to reiterate it because I think it's an important point to reiterate is traders start to fall into these just random, discrete camps. And it's just because of human nature, right? So it's like the same thing with politics where somebody will say, I'm conservative or I'm liberal. Well, personally, I'm kind of both depending on the issue. It's the same thing with trading. I'm not just an options trader. I'm not just a futures trader. I'm not even just a stock market trader. So the reason why I think it's important to talk about why trading options is because they fill very specific needs. Like you were just talking about, for people that trade via purely direction, meaning... Mm -hmm. They do their technical analysis and they think something is going to go up or go down, whatever it is, fine. Most instances with that, they're better off just trading a Delta One product. So that means just buying the stock or selling the stock. Mm -hmm. A lot of scenarios, they're better off just cutting options out of the mix because whenever you trade options, you can isolate all different kinds of risk. I can isolate my Delta risk so that it's bound and then I'm exposed only to Vega. I can expose myself to time risk if I choose to. So there's different ways via gamma scalping for anybody that trades long options. But my point being is 
whenever we trade options, we're adding complexity, as you highlighted. You cannot trade an option and get rid of volatility. That's the purpose of options. Mm -hmm. As soon as there's a time component to any product, volatility is now firmly introduced, especially into the pricing of the contract. So when I think about trading options, there are a handful of reasons that make it rational to trade options. But before I answer that, I actually want to ask the two folks that we have on the call and preemptively see why do they trade options and then go from there. So whichever you guys want to go first, I would love to know, at least as of you as you sit right now, why do you trade options as compared to something else? Sam, you want to go first? Sure. Uh... So for me, uh, I trade options uh, more so for in terms of the long-term aspects. Uh, I believe when I first was introduced to options, the first strategy I kind of looked at was was the leaps uh, strategy. So with that, I kind of understood it was quite. I was going to be using leverage in terms of picking individual stocks or indexes, um, and then um, usually my my thought process was usually throughout time the market usually goes up. And so if I can capitalize on uh, on that based on certain individual stocks, I could get a higher uh, higher return than, than usual. So that's how I kind of started with options. Now that uh, I'm looking to kind of grow my account, I'm looking at cash, cash secured puts and obviously selling covered calls uh, once I accumulate obviously over 100 shares. Got it. Good. Uh, Lucas? Yeah. So I think one of the main reasons is that you know you have the ability to earn higher than the market you know average return per year i think that's one of the the great things about trading options is that it's somewhat achievable to to earn higher than average returns but i mean i trade options because i can kind of put my faith in the statistics and i just kind of like you know all the other variables that that you have to pay attention to i feel like when there's more going on like the more focused I can be, which like kind of sounds like counterintuitive, but that's just that's just how my mind works. You actually need more more data to to be able to focus on it. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. That's interesting. I offer there's two reasons to trade options. Um, I guess three. First reason is leverage, which was mentioned. Yep. The second reason is to expose yourself to volatility. And the third reason, which is kind of why I started with two reasons, is to reduce volatility. Beyond that, there's not really a good reason to trade options, which is funny because I primarily trade options. So it's kind of like if I'm a salesman, I'm selling myself out of a job right now. But the, <laughs> that's the reality of it. And it's funny because more of the sophisticated options traders that I know, they don't even like it for leverage. They prefer only volatility or to either expose himself and take on volatility risk for a premium or to cover volatility in their returns. So uh, it sounds like upfront, Sam, you were talking about leverage, so I can get behind that. And then Lucas, it sounds like a, a little bit of a mi mismatch of things. And I think throughout the rest of the conversation, I want to get into why I firmly believe those are really the two primary reasons to trade options, leverage and volatility. And again, kind of volatility has some offshoots. But without that as the guiding feature, I think we find ourselves trading options just because we trade options. And it's an awful reason. 
because one of the most annoying thing about options is going back to that directional trader example I started to get into before. I could decide, uh, you know, I create my edge via being really good at determining support and resistance using Fibonacci's. And I have a high efficacy, annotated really anything greater than 51% accuracy, 51% or greater accuracy. You can make money on that pretty easily. So using that scenario, I could choose to deploy options to express that opinion. The son of a bitch is if volatility moves against me, even though my directional assumption might have played out correctly, I'm still wrong. Or let's say my assumption takes a week longer than my options expiration, I still lose. Mm -hmm. So whenever we choose to trade options, we are adding a time-bound element to our trade, and we're also adding exposure to volatility. So I just want to make sure that we're keeping that in the back of our minds whenever we're choosing to place an options trade. It's how confident am I in this time frame? What do I think about volatility? Whether or not volatility is the primary reason for placing a trade, you still need to respect it and acknowledge that that is part of your trade. No matter what, it's still there. Even if you try to attempt to trade gamma neutral, delta neutral, you still have volatility risk. You can never completely eliminate your volatility risk when you're trading options. And that's the beauty of it. That's why options work. So we're not trying to isolate that risk. It's actually the risk we're purposefully exposing ourselves to. Mm -hmm. So. With that as the background, you know, I'm happy to take the conversation wherever you guys want to go, but I wanted to offer that as a baseline and a lens to look through the rest of the conversation with. Okay. Yeah. I think I just, I also didn't do a very good job at answering the question very straightforward. Um, but my, my trades that I've been putting on that I've been doing more research behind have been uh, selling volatility. So if you want, just kind of use that as a baseline for what I'm currently doing. But yeah, I, I do understand what you're saying. And yeah, that makes sense. All right. So uh, with with that baseline established then, who uh, who wants to kick off the uh, the first question here? I think Sam can take this because it seems like he's been he's been going first and I've been going second on these uh, on these questions. So far. I was just going whoever is in the order on the uh, the list. But yeah, Sam, if you want to jump in first, go ahead. Sure. Uh, so I know I've been following uh, Eric for for past little bit. Uh, I know. I know he's been trading a lot. Uh, he's been selling a lot of option calls, uh, specifically uh, taking advantage of the implied volati volatility percentile. Uh, I just wanted to know specifically if if that has been your main method that you've used in this bear market, or has there been other strategies that you've kind of used to kind of capture uh, capture the returns that you have uh, during this bear market? Yeah, it's a really good question. Thank you. So. There's a couple things to talk about there. When I think about my broader approach to trading options, there are a handful of things that I look to deploy. So specifically in a bear market for an options trader, it is probably one of the best possible scenarios for us. And it's because of volatility, right? That thing I said is the entire purpose why we all trade options, whether it's specifically to capture disparity and volatility, implied versus realized, or if it's to try and make that 1,000 banger on a long call, the only way that those happen is via volatility. So looking at a bear market, everything is in play. Everything gets interesting. The one thing I do is I scale back a lot of my initial allocations for my core strategies. 
So for a quick context, I break up my portfolio into two buckets. It's all part of the same pool of money. I just allocate it. It's one of kind of my defining features on how I navigate markets. So whenever I see different economic conditions, I essentially change how much of my portfolio I'm using at a given time and how much I allocate to my core versus speculative allocations. Core allocations for me are generally the coverage strangle in index ETFs or blue chip stocks, mostly index ETFs these days, or um, diagonals sometimes, less so, but sometimes. And when I'm talking about the coverage strangle, it's not just the full formed coverage strangle as if this is like a you know evolved Pokemon. There's all the different offshoots, right? So there's cash secured puts, then there's a period when we might have a covered or uncovered call. And then there's the period where we might actually have the full covered strangle. So all iterations of those technically live within the core bucket for me. And then the speculative allocation, it's kind of what it sounds like. That's where I'm looking to take a shot of some sort, whether I think um, the variance risk premium looks attractive. Okay. That would fall into the speculative bucket. Or if I start to get more directional, I want to take directional plays. I want to trade earnings. All of that falls into the speculative bucket, which tends to run a smaller percentage of the account than the core. Going back to the question, during a bear market, since my core strategies tend to be bullish in nature, I scale those back. I start to deploy more speculative strategies for two reasons. One, most of them are, short, or are shorter term in nature. So it gives me time and space to form and firm up my opinion about the market. And then once that happens, I can start playing broader market themes. So for example, in 2020, when we had the COVID bear market or last year, when we had the, the bear market last year, both of those instances, now the COVID bear market, it definitely caught me more with my pants down just in terms of the severity of the drop. That was a, a really, really significant drop, but I was still very lightly allocated leading into it. So it gave me a lot of room to move and scale in, which is exactly what I did. During the bull or the bear market last year, it was a little different because I was already light cash because of the way the market had been behaving. So for like the first half of the year, I do... I still do like a, a YouTube live session every Monday afternoon slash evening. And for anybody that was following those, like the first half of last year, I don't think I was more than 15% invested. And it's because I was just deploying intraday risk or short-term risk, rolling it off and moving on. So to get into specific strategies, I was still trading and almost always trade the coverage strangle to some degree. And that's because I do my best to probabilistically expose myself to market direction. I frame it that way because I don't believe in my capacity with any sort of high efficacy to determine where the market's going to go over really any time frame other than long-term time frames. And that's just because of positive drift. So with that, I will scale and deploy the coverage strangle almost always. I just scale it back. And then last year, it was a lot of volatility trading, as you were kind of pointing out from a lot of the videos I was doing. And it's because there were actually inverse instances where a lot of times if we're trading the variance risk premiums, this is essentially just a known phenomenon 
where implied volatility tracks higher than realized volatility. And there's a bunch of reasons for this, which we can get into later. But the, the main synopsis of it is implied volatility tends to track higher than realized volatility. But there are periods in time where it inverses, where realized volatility is actually higher than implied volatility. So there's other strategies that benefit from that relationship, typically buying strategies. So that is when I start trading more diagonals. So last year, it was a lot of earnings plays, announcement plays, and directional ratio diagonals is the short summation of all of that. How do you trade earnings? Just out of curiosity. There's two phenomenon that really are, you can always bank on them. There's almost always an implied volatility expansion leading into earnings. The time frame that that happens is a little tricky because it's changing. Mm-hmm. But you can essentially, because the markets are smart, right? They don't, they, it's the same reason why theta decay doesn't occur over the weekends. It's accelerated into the tail half of the week. So that, right. because who wouldn't do that? It's the same thing. Like we know earnings is a binary event. So a lot of times market makers will start to increase their pricing to compensate for that like a week out mm-hmm. so that they can streamline to increase it, but it's slower and it's more difficult to take advantage. So something like a long straddle a week out can be really effective. Depending on your risk tolerance, you can gamma hedge it or not. And then I typically will close that down before the release. And then before the close, before the release, I normally will offer some sort of short straddle if I think that just implied volatility is over, overvalued compared to what I think realized will be. If I have a directional assumption, I'll do a um, skewed strangle. So sometimes I'll just either modify the deltas or the shares. So let's say um, this past week, there was a few key earnings and there's actually a, a lot more earnings coming up this week. But mm-hmm. for example, coming into UAL, United Airlines, United Airline earnings, I had really mixed feelings about what I thought UAL might do but I didn't think it was going to be anything impressive. And it already had a very interesting run up into earnings to like a plus two linear regression channel. So all I did was a short strangle, but I sold more short calls than short puts to create a ratio to give me one exposure to the variance risk premium, but two to have a little bit of a directional twist to it. So if I have a directional assumption, I'll play something typically like that. If I don't, it'll be a short straddle. Very interesting. So. You don't really trade them like naked then. You always have, you're basically like skewing a, a, a more complex strategy to, to to put your directional thesis into play. Yeah, it's still naked though, by, by all accounts. So like if I trade a short strangle, it's short calls and short puts. Like mm-hmm. I'm not cash securing those puts. I'm using the portfolio margin requirement. And I, I'm very careful about the way I allocate those trades because if I'm trading something like the covered strangle, for example, the brokerage doesn't know that it's a covered strangle. They just know it's a short put. And they're going to just tell me the portfolio margin required to secure that position. But what I do in my Excel sheets is I track the actual capital required to secure that position. And then I'll normally park it in like a box spread to to earn some sort of interest leading into the event. But the point being, like, I track my allocations and margin requirements very carefully for something like short straddles, short strangles, especially around that are in my speculative allocation like this, 
I'm not cash securing any of them. They're, they're naked positions. I am typically creating a directional skew to them if I'm so inclined, but it's still not secured. Mm-hmm. So then what is your, your protection then? Is that like, what happens if the earnings come out and it's like a huge surprise and price skyrockets the next, you know, in after hours? Then I eat my loss and move on. Okay. Sizing. Yeah. Gotcha. I, I, I size the trades very carefully and there are things that I, I won't short. So like for a long time, it's, I'm a little more comfortable with it now, but I don't typically short anything in tech. Because tech has the propensity to do those kind of just insane runaway moves. Yeah. Now, I can still experience outsized moves in something like UAL, but it's typically not to the same degree. And the volatility, you know, can tell me a lot of that. Mm-hmm. So there's also a lot of other ways that I decrease my risk. I have kind of a, a pretty comprehensive tracker for earnings where I track the earnings for the past two years, not just the earnings release, but price behavior for the week out the week of, the day of, the day after. And I just created a sample of data that says, okay, so for the past eight earnings, six of them were beats. This is how it behaved on a beat. Two of them were misses. This is how it behaved on a miss. And I just create space around those worst case scenarios, but it gives me a planning factor. Does that mean that if something missed, you know, and it shot up 10 points, that it's only going to shoot up 10 points in the future? Absolutely not. But what I can do is plot all of the extreme moves to the upside and downside and say, okay, out of all of the previous eight earnings, the largest move was 10 points. The mean was six. The propensity for this to move 40 points isn't huge. It's not zero, but it's not big. So then I just size things appropriately. Gotcha. Uh, Sam, Lucas, you guys have any follow-up questions? So I know you, you still, so you still, you don't use the covered strangle as much um during bear markets but i know you still mm-hmm. deploy it from time to mm-hmm. time um i know you roll a lot of your positions um mm-hmm. i know previously uh, at one point you have said you have like a table in terms of uh clo- taking down positions or like or like um rolling positions i know i know you said you have a table of uh based on the max i believe it was there's like a max profit that you achieve within a given time frame, you'll take it down. Uh, and you said you had a table. How did you accumulate that, the data to, to kind of create that table or to kind of have, have like a guideline of uh, rolling or taking down certain trades whenever, uh, whenever you needed to? I love that question. It's a little mixed up just because typically when I'm rolling, it's a losing position. And that table that you're highlighting is for taking off winning trades typically. Okay. Um, but it's a good question anyways, and I think we can summarize it. So for the table, I literally just ran data. And this is one of the most important aspects of trading options. People, people prefer simple narratives, myself included. Who wouldn't want everything to be simple? The problem is, is it's not. So the sooner we can accept that, the better we can make better informed decisions. So with that, I know a lot of people like, you know, Tasty Trade mechanics, and I like a lot of aspects of Tasty Trade. I, I've interviewed Tom on the channel recently. Like, I like them. I've known them for a long time. They're good people. But it's always important to remember the way that they're structuring things. They are simplifying a lot of stuff so that it is easily consumable by most people. It's not that simple. Now, what they're doing is they're distilling it down to something that's high enough efficacy but easily consumed. I'm not so concerned with that level of clarity. I want the right answer. 
So what I do for that is I look at my data sample. I, I buy data pretty frequently as I need it to, to run studies. I used to do that a lot. But realistically, what I do now is I have enough of my own data that I've collected as well. But you can buy data from the SIBO. You can get down to one-minute options data with Greeks and just about everything. So anyways... What you can do is access data, whether it's buying it like that or if it's um, tracking it yourself. And then I just do the same old statistical analysis that I do for everything else because our judgment as human beings is perpetually skewed by a million things. So I acknowledge that fact and I might have certain um, thought processes based on my experience. And I don't discount those because our ability to subconsciously process information and make good decisions very quickly is actually really good. Our brain is designed to do that, but it can also become skewed by small things here and there. So I use data all the time. So anyways, what I do is I look at, okay, if my short put, for example, if it makes 35% max profit within 24 hours, does that make sense to take off? And I just start with a hypothesis. And I just like any other scientific test, let's say if my short put option makes X percent return within a week, does it make sense to take the trade off? And what I do is I just look at how much risk is still left, how much time is left, and how much more slowly is that option going to decay since so much of it decayed up front? And I just optimized off of that. So that's how I created that table. It's just an optimization table saying, if I make X percent of max profit in X percent time, it doesn't make sense in terms of a risk holding perspective for the slower rate of theta decay because too much of it decayed too fast, which is a good thing, high class problem to have. Mm -hmm. Now for, for rolling, there's always two choices or two scenarios that play out. First, I always look at the portfolio. What is my portfolio risk as of right now? And that is a guiding feature. So let's say I have a very lightly invested portfolio. Okay, everything's on the table. I don't have any real preconceived notions going into the, into the roll decision. It just comes down to a dollars and cents. If I roll, how much can I make on the roll? How much can I reduce my risk by reducing the basis? Or if I take assignment, how much money do I make on the short premium? And how much can I sell short calls for against it if I still have spot price sensitivity? And that spot price sensitivity is really important function of that because I do not like taking assignment unless I'm able to sell calls to some degree for a reasonable price. And if I can't, that's when I look to roll more often than not. If the other scenario, I, I look at the portfolio and I have a ton of shit. I have a lot of risk that I've taken in. There's a ton of other things I've taken assignment on. And I'm like, eh, I don't really want to take assignment here. I want to reduce the risk. I'm going to have a preference to roll. Or if spot prices move too far, I'm going to have a preference to roll. And in those instances, I just start doing the math on optimizing a roll. So the table tells me optimized profit-taking scenarios the rolling situation comes down to portfolio first and then just a comparison. What makes me more money? Taking assignment, selling calls, or rolling, reducing risk, and ideally regaining spot price sensitivity so that if I eventually take assignment, I can then sell calls. All right, let's get Lucas involved in here now. I think uh, he's been sitting nice and quiet waiting to ask one of these really good questions I see highlighted here. Yeah, so I think this is 
what we just discussed kind of rolls directly into this, but I mean, I was going to bring up managing winners and losers, but that, that covered it pretty well. Yeah. I think we is can, there any, yeah, I, I think we can. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. All I was going to say is if there's any other way that you can expand on managing winners and losers, go ahead. Yeah, for sure. And it's a really good question. I think for that, it comes down to the numbers. It should not be arbitrary. You choosing to manage a trade at X or Y should in no way, shape or form be based on the analysis that somebody else did at all, period, end of story. People do that all the time and it drives me wild. I understand using other people's analysis as a starting point. That is smart. There's no reason to reinvent the wheel. But there's, again, we're missing that additional context. So when I think about managing winners and losers, there's a few things that come to mind. And it's all wrapped around expectancy. That's, that's the name of the game here, is expectancy. Now, there's one overlay filter that's important to remember. Remember when we first were talking about the reasons for trading options. We can choose to trade options to attempt to find alpha, essentially excess market returns, sometimes risk-adjusted, sometimes not, depending on your perception of it. But then the second thing is to reduce risk. So if we're trading to reduce risk, I'm not worried about optimizing my profits necessarily. I'm going to have a different approach to managing winning trades and losing trades. But all of that still bundles into the same concept, which is expected return. I need to make sure that I am allowing my winners against their frequency to overwhelm the losers against their frequency. So by understanding the strategies that I'm running, I start again with a hypothesis and then optimize. So for example, let's say we're trading a long option for a change of pace. And I am only buying far out of the money options that have short DTE, meaning they expire in the near future. Inherently, that tells me they're cheap. They have the real propensity to gain gamma real fast, but they're cheap. So because of that, I inherently know that the average loss, the average losing trade will be low, but the propensity for a loss will be high. I need to keep that in mind when I'm choosing when I want to take profits because let's say we buy an option for five cents and then we want to sell it when it hits seven cents because we've made money. Well, net fees, you've probably made nothing. But more importantly than that, you can do the math and see how frequently do you hit seven cents. That will give you the probability of a win against the probability of not hitting seven cents, which is your probability for a loss. We're just going to take the average win size times the probability of a win minus the average losing size times the probability of a loss. There's your expectancy for the strategy. The cool part is we can calculate the expected return on historic trades that we all log, I'm sure, <laughs> or we can project it forward and we can use assumptions based on probabilities in the markets to say, if I choose to do this, what are the forward-looking probabilities? What's the forward-looking expected return? So I think when it comes to managing winners and losers, that's the first lens you've got to look through is expected return. The second thing is there's a very real reality, especially for smaller accounts on max pain or account drawdown. Most small accounts are disadvantaged in that they're almost always overexposed and it leads to a big problem where you have to be very thoughtful about how much risk you take. So you sometimes have to take suboptimal losers to survive another day. 
you have to make sure you include that in the expectancy calculation in order to make an informed decision. What do you mean by that, taking suboptimal losers? Can you explain that a little bit more? Or shizzle my nizzle. So when we have a um, an unrealized loss, we can do the math. We can say, if I buy this option, I frequently see an unrealized loss of, let's just call it $10. Mm-hmm. But Based on my you know, previous performance, 62% of the time, it actually rallies into a winning trade. Okay, cool. But if for whatever reason, that $10 loss is too large of a loss on your account for the account size, you have to take it anyways. Right. Even though we know the probabilities favor a better move, you can't risk the drawdown. So that's what I mean by suboptimal loss. Yep. No, that makes perfect sense. Thank you. Of course. Uh, Lucas, any follow-up questions? So for the first part, you had just mentioned, it's just like complete, like when it comes to, you know, rolling positions, it's just completely based on numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, so like some people would think, you know, they're, they've sold premium and it's starting to move in the wrong direction. So their thought process is, you know, I'll just roll this out, collect more premium and I'll be good. But you're not just thinking like that. You're You're thinking... Well, you're doing the the analysis to see if I were to roll this, is it really a positive expectancy or should I just take the loss here? Yeah. And depending on the kind of trade, like if I'm trading short strangle, for example, and the short put gets challenged, I frequently don't just try to ignorantly roll those out into perpetuity. Although a lot of times you can, there's a real factor of opportunity cost and there's also just a sunk cost fallacy. People, the ego cannot be understated, and people's aversion to losing trades is the entire reason why variance risk premium exists. We fear the downside. So the idea of just rolling things out, because that's that's really what's going on. We don't want to take a losing trade. But the problem is there might be a more efficient exit than doing that. So I think rolling has a time and place. I roll frequently, but it's, I typically will roll things that I'm eventually willing to take assignment on if I have to. If not, my propensity to roll is significantly reduced because that is exactly how so many short premium sellers get crushed because they have a short put that they roll once. Then you know the market falls another 20% and then they roll again, whatever the case is. The problem is you can't roll into perpetuity. It's one of the biggest misconceptions that exist. It's people don't understand the finances of what happens because again, the ego, they want to think as they roll, oh, we're collecting a credit so we could do this forever. No, each time we roll, we are realizing a loss on the account. It erodes the value of the account. So you can have a position where you have plenty of money in your cash and sweep, but you're illiquid. Then you get a margin call. You're stuck now. So I think understanding the the finances of rolling help make better decision cycles depending on the strategy that you're running. Oh, that's a great point. So I think a good way to look at it to maybe combat like that that urge to, you know, of the ego to just mm-hmm. roll it out and not realize that loss would just kind of be to think about, you know, if I'd let this position go, that's free up capital to, you know, potentially put on a different trade that has a, a better expectancy. Absolutely. And that's another thing that drives me crazy is when people think that they're like rolling a trade, you know, they're like, well, I didn't realize a loss because I collected a credit. And it's like, no, no, fam, like you did realize a loss. Like as soon as you close that option, 
rolling is fake. That's another hot take I have, but we call it rolling for our, our convenience. But what happens is you have an option that you put on and an option you closed. That's it. That's a realized PL discreetly. Then we're opening a brand new position and we mentally maintain accounting between the two, but nobody else does. Nobody else cares. Rolling is just for convenience. So it's super important to note that if you have a losing trade and you roll it, you are realizing loss. Your account value is already marked to that loss. Your net lick in day trades or whatever broker you know you use, however they frame it, but your net liquidity already accounts for whatever the current value is of each open trade. So as soon as you close it, you've realized the loss. Your account value is already where it was going to be, including that loss. So yeah, absolutely. I think most people are too averse to losing trades and they don't fully understand that they just need to embrace it as part of being a trader. Killing the ego early is one of the most important factors to finding success in trading. And it's so difficult because when we're first starting to trade, I remember when I did and I heard people talking about psychology and this, I'm thinking like, these are all just motherfuckers that can't trade. But the longer you do it, the longer you realize actually how important it is. Now, just to you know, round that thought out, good psychology doesn't make you a good trader, right? I also think there's too much emphasis on psychology. Those are also probably people that can't trade very well. But I think talking about it and having a healthy balance between good strategy and good psychology goes a long way. And like you're talking about with the rolling trades, it's a big part of it, I think. Well, you made a good comment to me, Eric, at one point where you said, like, you can have good psychology, but if you don't have a setup that you have positive expectancy on, you're not going to be successful. It doesn't matter how good your psychology is. You could have the perfect psychology. And if you don't have a way to make money, then you just have good psychology. Right. You just you just like yourself, regardless of your performance. At that point, I would rather have bad psychology and make money than the inverse. Right. <laughs> Longtime fans of the show should be familiar with the lender formerly known as Sue Pullen, and I'm pleased to announce that she's back, fresh off a rebrand and ready to help as Sue Mackey. Sue is a certified mortgage advisor at Fairway Independent Mortgage, an equal housing lender who focuses on finding the right product for you and your needs. She has over 20 years of experience helping thousands of homeowners. Whether it's purchasing, refinancing, or even a reverse mortgage, Sue will help. Sue's licensed in 36 states now, so reach out and let Sue Mackey it happen for you. The best way to reach her is just give her a call at 520-977-7904 or in an email, spullen at fairwaymc.com. Fairway Independent Mortgage has an MLS number of 2289. Sue Mackey has an MLS number of 206048. That email again, spullen at fairwaymc.com. And that phone number is 520-977-7904. Shoot Sue an email and let her know she needs to update that address. I think maybe a quick question would be how much of an impact does the spread of an option carry? Yeah, for sure. Can you just elucidate a little bit more? So when you're talking about the spread of an option, I presume you're talking about the bid-ask spread? Yep, yep, bid-ask spread. Yeah, so the impact for me is pretty straightforward, It's and it's twofold. The first one is liquidity. If I see a wide spread, it makes me concerned. That's always going to be relative, though, to the price of the underlying. If you have a big underlying, more often than not, you're going to have a slightly wider spread. One of the simplest ways to 
create a scale for you mentally. Once you look at it a long time, you kind of know when something's wide or not. But early on, just create a percent, right? Just take the bid minus the ask. It gives you whatever that number is divided by the price of the underlying. It gives you a percentage essentially to base, okay, this per, this spread is X percent wide. And you can use a great benchmark like the SPY or the SPX for two very different price products to understand like what a good percentage spread liquidity is. So with that tool arming you, the first thing is liquidity. The second thing is if it's something you're going to actively trade a lot, it just gets way more and more expensive because you're paying the spread. A lot of people think that if you see like a low upfront commissions that you're essentially trading for cheap, but you're not like you're still effectively paying the spread. So I would, if it's something I'm trading frequently, liquidity becomes even more important to me, but upfront, I don't trade anything that's illiquid and the spread's one of the easiest ways to see it. The last thing I will say on that is sometimes it also helps me understand what options chains make more sense. So even if it's something I'm not planning to trade a whole bunch in, let's say I'm trading the coverage strangle in an individual stock that I'm mostly just going to buy and hold, sell calls on it once a month, whatever. So I, I, liquidity doesn't matter to me too much. But if there's weeklies and the liquidity is awful, sometimes I'll go to the normal expiration and liquidity will be better. So it also just informs if I'm able to trade weeklies or not. All right. Sounds good. Building off of the spread, as I've I learned that lesson very early on in my uh, uh, trading journey about how the spread can really crush a... <laughs> I think I was trading a um, SAP, like, was that two, three years ago? And like, it was almost a $2 spread on it, but I had no idea what that even meant. <laughs> but basically, uh, you know, the price of the underlying, you know, moves a good solid 10%, but yet the, the bid is still right where I bought my contract at. So I had no, I still couldn't get out of the thing. Well, that's, that's also because of volatility. Right. But also as you build complexity into it, now you have to, to, to close out multiple, uh, positions. Like if you're, you know, say a covered vertical spread, like you have a mm -hmm. open, you buy and sell a call, you know, with just different spread prices. But now you have to try to close out two of those to get out of your position, and that becomes a lot harder. Do you typically like to market out in those in that situation, or are you still trying to set limits and trying to get filled? Uh, I just break it. I I almost never like if I'm selling a strangle, I don't submit it as a strangle. I just go to the put, then go to the call, or vice versa. And mm -hmm. trade it one leg at a time. Trying to again, that's literally just a money grab. You are getting you are getting taken to the cleaners on the bid ask spread on both sides there, and it's just to attempt to get you a fill for your own convenience. Very rarely do I fulfill them that way. All right, I'll stop. Thank you for that. <laughs> yeah, there's no reason to. <laughs> All right, uh, Sam, what do you got for us? Okay, I got a quick one. <clears throat> might be dumb, but might as well ask. Do you ever use uh, a market buy when you use options or is it always a limit? That's actually surprisingly, it, as much as I wanted to make a joke about it being a dumb question, it's really not. It's not, no. Yeah, yeah. because it, there's a time and place for everything. The way I think about it is if I am trying to be efficient, I'm going to use a limit order. But if you need to get in or get out, market. And you just accept the trade-off with the market is that, again, you're going to get a suboptimal fill. But let's say I have an entire portfolio that's going to hell in a handbasket and I need to get into futures to hedge. Am I going to sit there and nickel-dime limit orders 
to try and save two pennies to get in? Absolutely not. I'm going to hit a market order to stop the bleeding. So there's a time and place for both. I love that. That's a great question. I think a lot of people are afraid of market orders for some reason, but how many times do you sit waiting to try to get filled on something and watch it take off because you're trying to get too greedy, trying to save an extra, you know, what ends up being two, $3 a contract. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. And it's also just because that's, again, it's another thing that, that common trading social media networks, specifically talking about tasty trade, which again, I don't disagree with them. They're teaching a good habit, but mm-hmm. people become too non-discerning, right? They're just trying to copy exactly what they see and they lose nuance, this being one of them, because Tasty Trade also talks a lot about using limit orders, rightfully so. The majority of my orders are. But if it's something I need to get a fill on, I'm going market. I'm going to accept that I'm going to take a haircut, but it is what it is. All right. Who's got the next one? Is there a sweet spot for Delta when it comes to selling? like strangles or straddles, or is it more based on your own risk tolerance? Because I first like kind of combined this question. I mentioned tasty trade in it, but I figured I would just leave that out because they, they just mainly talk about, you know, one standard deviation Delta. So is that like, is that like the most efficient or is that just, so yeah. So I guess let's take that. Yeah, it's not. Um, I understand why they do it. What again, like they produce, content that's generally accurate in most circumstances, but it is most certainly not optimal. The reason why it's not optimal is when first and foremost, it's going to depend on the trade hypothesis. So talk to me about you specifically when you are trading either a, um, short strangle or short straddle. What is your trade hypothesis? What are you trying to make happen in that trade? So what I've been working with is iron condors, which I would compare that to a strangle, just risk, you know? Exactly. So I'm just looking for just volatility contraction. And yeah, so just looking for things that are high IV percentage, sell the volatility on that and look to make money on time and volatility contraction. Is that is that what you were asking? Yep, absolutely. Okay. What if implied volatility is very high and realized volatility is also very high? Does that strategy make money? No, because it wouldn't it wouldn't mean revert to It's correct. It it wouldn't. Okay. The reason why I bring it up is because using high implied volatility percentile Again, it's a convenient back of the napkin tool. What you are really attempting to capture in that strategy is variance risk premium. What you want is implied volatility to run higher than realized volatility. And that is essentially where that decay will come in. And more importantly, it's how you make money. It's important to understand how a strategy makes money because then that's how we, again, optimize. So when we look at where would the optimal delta be to capture variance risk premiums, we can study that pretty carefully for the nerds like me. I don't expect most people to do that. But the back of the napkin answer to that is somewhere between 15 and 25 delta. 
is where variance risk premiums in most products is currently trending the highest. I was seeing around 20 Delta. I did a recent conversation with Ewan Sinclair, who's um, pretty adept. He's a PhD. Does He's written a lot of books about option volatility trading. So I really respect his opinion. Um, but I was talking with him a few weeks ago and he was seeing it around you know 15 Delta. So it slides a little bit, but not that much. So realistically, you can find it somewhere between 15 and 25 Delta. Okay, so there's, there's kind of like a statistically optimal point, but it changes. Slightly. Yeah, okay. that, that's absolutely accurate. I think that answers the question pretty well. Excellent. And then also a nice lead into the book question here. We'll, we'll put a pin in that, come back to that later. But uh, Sam, what do you got for us? So I know, Eric, uh, you've been doing quite a bit of intraday trades. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I can barely speak now. So what are you specifically looking for? Um, do you still look for volatility uh, during intraday trades when you're trying to go in and out? Or is it more so speculative trades that you see based on based on price action and like uh, volume? Or is there other factors? It's a good question. So typically speaking, if it's an intraday trade for me, it's going to be volatility based. If it's a directional trade, I again, going you know all the way back to, to the beginning, I don't treat my capacity to predict direction with any high degree of efficacy, especially in shorter term timeframes. So I tend to give them more room to be right. But with shorter term opportunities, I can know with relative fairness that uh, volatility is going to move one way or the other. And you can see it in pricing and you can just see it in the fact that volatility is a mean reverting um, function. So it gives a lot of structure, you know, behind different hypotheses. So yeah, intraday more often than not will be volatility based. The only other time that I'll trade intraday that's not volatility based is if I'm just looking to enter a covered strangle. And I, I still like the, the subtext behind that is still volatility based, but it's also just because of theta decay. In those instances, theta decay will be the fastest there. And I'm essentially, you know, I, I don't care if I get assigned. So I'm just capturing the accelerated theta decay. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to, uh, I'm trying to think about it because I've never really thought about it that way um, in terms of intraday training. Uh, how much, how much does volatility, I know this is like a very, it's uh, the question's like very vague, but how, does volatility really contract within a day, or like expand within a day? Yep. Okay. Absolutely. It's it's perpetual. Gotcha. I have a question that that kind of piggybacks off that. Go ahead. I guess how does it move that much in a day? Like like what is your sizing, or how do you how do you profit off of like volatility moves intraday? Like does it really move on like that much? It depends on the current state of the volatility. So for example, if we see instances where implied is tracking just grossly higher than realized, yeah, it can move a ton in a day. Um, Another great example of that is earnings. If you pull up any sort of earnings play and you look at the implied volatility before the release and the realized volatility slash implied volatility post-release, sometimes the realized will come up again if we get a big miss and things move a lot. But more often than not, you're going to see just a dramatic contraction in implied volatility. And that's not even within a day. It's within minutes. Don't you see that a lot off of the open too? Because it seems like the the price of an options contract is a lot more uh, pricey, like the minute the market opens, but within within five to 10 minutes, it's it's come down quite a bit. 
that will be pretty contextually driven. We can see instances where the inverse of that will happen. Right. I'm speaking generally, of course. Yeah, yeah. I think I think there's a and again, depending on the product, I think there's a fair like general statement behind that. Mm-hmm. There's also very widespread at the beginning of the market open too, so it's really hard to probably to take advantage of that. Yeah. All right. Who's next? Keep them coming. Um. So I think Robert from our Discord server also had kind of mentioned something about this question, but. What method of delta hedging is best for a small account? None. <laughs> I was looking okay. forward to this answer. <laughs> Please expound, Eric. Yes. Sure. So delta hedging in a lot of instances goes back to ego hedging. We don't like to lose. The correct way, in my opinion, to delta hedge for small accounts is to not delta hedge and just size trades appropriately. If you need to reduce risk in an options trade, one, you're probably too small to trade them. But two, more importantly, you could use verticals if you have to. The problem is any sort of good hedge serves as drag on your returns. So if you are essentially to the point where you're saying, I can trade so well that not only can I outperform the market, but I can outperform the market enough to afford a hedge and the drag on a hedge, then go for it. I don't think most people fall into that bucket. I think most people open the account and they don't like seeing a losing trade. So they're like, oh crap, I should hedge this. Really, it's going to come via risk sizing. Hedge comes at a cost. And the other thing I just want to highlight on hedging in particular is the Goldilocks scenario, as I like to refer to it. People all the time drive me crazy with this, where they'll say, oh, well, I'll just you know take the hedge down when it's profitable and then wait until my main trade is profitable and take that down. Homie, you just completely defeated the purpose of a fucking hedge. The hedge (laughs) is there to prevent catastrophic loss against a base position or to just reduce risk in a base position. In that scenario, the Goldilocks scenario, somebody is essentially just saying, I want to make money on both of these. These are both trades that are active. It's not a hedge. So I think that that's like one of the biggest mistakes to go into a hedge. Now, I want to caveat all of that with, that's not impossible. That can happen. If you're trading a vertical spread and the further out of the money wing is serving as the hedge for the base wing that's closer to the money, in that scenario, you can most certainly take down the further out of the money wing when it's profitable. But your primary position is not going to be profitable at that point in time. More often than not, volatility sometimes can absolutely let them both be profitable, which I would take that down almost always. But those outlier scenarios aside, more often than not, if your hedge is profitable, your primary trade is not profitable. Why on earth would we take that off at that point in time? That's when you need the hedge. I thought the main reason for delta hedging was really just to try to eliminate the movement of the stock and try to capture just the volatility component of an options. But in my mind, like that just implies that you're having to basically continuously keep your hedge going, like you're constantly having to adjust it. So it's a great dovetail different thing people think if that's what you're trying to do like let's say if i'm trying to short a straddle to capture and isolate just volatility delta hedging is not going to get me there i need to gamma hedge you have to gamma hedge first and then neutralize the deltas and then Mm. to your point from that point forward you can scalp deltas to rebase but delta changes fast So people get too focused on delta hedging 
and they forget that the name of the game of uh, is gamma hedging, which funny enough, gamma hedging involves modifying your deltas, but it's making sure that we're focused on the right part of the equation because something that has, you can have two options that have the same gamma, or I'm sorry, the same delta, but if they have high gamma, a small move immediately fucks that all up. It's no a, a small move. Your perfectly delta hedged or perfectly delta neutral play is now no longer delta neutral. It's immediately changing. So that's why we have to, if that's our goal, we have to do it with respect to gamma via delta. So how do you gamma hedge then? So there's a lot of different ways you can deploy the strategy and it depends on if your base position is long or short. So it gets into a longer conversation, but realistically, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's not focusing on the deltas. It's focusing on the gamma, making sure the option gammas are offsetting. And then whatever the resulting deltas are, we typically would use the underlying to neutralize those deltas out. But we're focusing on neutralizing gamma. So if you look at two different options, um, I'm pulling up a quick example. I have UAL up, so just because it's here. And if I look at, let's say, a 30 delta call and put, and I look at the gamma, the gamma on the put is 0.06. The gamma on the call is 0.07. Close, not quite. So what I need to do is figure out how I can actually gain a closer relative gamma. This scenario is a little skewed just because it's a small price, but that's still a big gamma relative to the price of UAL, which is 49.46 right now. So the point being is I'm going to look first to isolate gamma, then I will scrub off the delta. So if I look at a 0.36 delta, um, if I look at a 0.36 delta put, the gamma on that is 0.07. So that matches up more closely with the 30 delta call. Now mm -hmm. I'm going to have a disparity in, in deltas, right? So I have 30 long deltas, 30 short deltas. So I need, or 36 short deltas. So I have to scrub six deltas. I'm going to use the underlying for that, but the gammas will be the same. So the propensity for them to get outsized too quickly, one compared to the other, the other is going to extend the life that you don't have to touch the trade. Oh man, we should rename this masterclass. <laughs> yeah. Well, gamma hedging, yeah. Gamma hedging gets, yeah. Because then you like, if you have long options, then you can start talking about gamma scalping where we can use those movements to actually pay for the theta, but you know, obviously a different, different thread. Okay. Ooh. Yeah. So that was the second example was more what my question was directed towards. Cause I wrote that question as I was reading, um, option volatility and pricing. Cause that comes up fairly, fairily quick yeah. um, and, and profiting off of options mispricing. So, yeah. but the thing is like when it comes, I guess I, the, the answer to my question would probably still be no, because it's pretty hard to do like these minor Delta adjustments with a small account, like, you know, cause you don't want to, you're not going to be, you know, doing some crazy options plays on cheaper stocks because normally they're, well, you can't really, you can't get the deltas you're looking for if like the price is too low. So if you're, you're doing a plan like $150 stock, doing the small adjustments to your delta, you know, takes up a large percentage of your, of your net lick. So for sure. And then there's the carrying cost of the hedge, right? Because we use Delta one products to hedge typically, because if you use another derivative, you're just adding complexity. Yeah. So let's say you need to add short deltas. You need to short the stock. There's interest that you're paying and 
if there's a dividend coming up, you're paying. So yeah, absolutely. There's drag that comes with it. And again, the the other thing is beyond the ability to have such good returns to essentially be able to justify paying for the drag of hedging, you also have just the the broader scenario of going back to why we're trading options in in that scenario, if it's to try to capture the variance risk premiums, you need to have enough scale for it to even make sense. If, especially if you're trading variance risk premiums in like an index now, it's pretty tight. So in order to do that effectively, you have to create scale, which means bigger position sizing. So again, I wouldn't say like all small accounts should never delta hedge. I really don't like speaking in absolutes like that. But I do think small accounts have a big enough battle they're facing attempting to even trade options, let alone adding the drag of a hedge. It seems like your efforts probably be better served somewhere else. There's probably some cover other calls, low man. hanging. Yeah. yeah. Cover cover calls. <laughs> there yep. you go. So you're better off just putting your energy towards and your money towards more yeah, just other things. Yep. Yes. Not something that I should be focusing on basically. Yeah, I, I think things like covered calls or one of my favorites, especially when growing an account, ratio diagonals. I recently did, not recently, actually, I think it was the first year I had the YouTube channel back in 2020, but I did like a $5,000 challenge account, you know? And I, I figured every YouTuber does it, so I can't call myself a YouTuber unless I do a <laughs> dumbass challenge account. Um, but really, it was, it was actually super fun because trading, it was a $5,000 account and it was so... So fucking annoying because you're so limited on everything. Super annoying. Anyways, the I traded different strategies. I traded the covered strangle, attempted to, and I also traded diagonals. And diagonals smoked everything in terms of the percentage of the return in the portfolio. So, and okay. I also found that when I was growing my account aggressively, diagonals, ratio diagonals were like my go-to. But means you have to be correct directionally, but that's also why I, I like to use ratio leap diagonals to give me time. Mm, I'll have to look into that then. I think for smaller accounts, it's important to not have capped upside. Larger accounts have the luxury of economies of scale. So if we cap our upside, it, it doesn't matter because I can just scale and get a reasonable return. Smaller accounts don't have that luxury. I think they need to have that higher return potential in order for any of it to make sense. Oh man. Good, good, good question. I love that one. Uh, mm -hmm. Great discussion there too. Uh, Sam, what do you got for us? I think, uh, I think Kyle, I think this is your question initially, but I do think it's an interesting yeah, question. Shit. Uh, I feel like he's uh, covered it mostly for me. <laughs> the answer is yes. <laughs> and all <Okay>. of them. <laughs> Volatility. But yeah, go ahead and ask it. We, we can get the reinforcement of that. Sure. Um, in terms of paying attention to to the Greeks of uh, selecting strikes and expirations, uh, do, is, there, is there like a process? So for example, specifically, let's say a cash secure put for like IWM for like a covered strangle strategy, do you usually select it based on how much premium you can achieve based on that strike price and the date uh, and the time frame, or do you use uh, or is it or does it depend on other factors? Anybody that follows me knows I'm going to say it depends because I can't help I myself. I know, um, but actually that scenario, fortunately, it really doesn't depend. Like if I'm trading the covered strangle and I'm entering via a cash secured put, the 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 only Greek I really care about is Delta. 
That's pretty much it. I, I don't care about the rest. But what I would say is for the broader context of that question is, you know, using the Greeks when selecting strikes and expirations, it always for me starts with the strategy. For example, if I'm trading leaps, long-term options greater than a year in um, expiration, row is actually important. And especially in this current environment, right? We're seeing lots of changes in interest rates that will impact those options pretty heavily. Does row impact zero DTE options? Not very much. So the way I answer that question is it really depends on the strategy and what risk is greatest for that strategy. Another way to use the Greeks for this long-term option example is if I'm buying an option theta, I'm losing money every day in theta decay. So I know that that's a risk. How can I minimize that risk? Well, I know if I go further in the money, aka higher delta, I'm going to have a lower theta decay because there's literally less time value in the options to decay. Lower theta decay. It's cheaper for me to hold it, higher upfront cost. The other thing is I know if I'm trading, again, the diagonal, I know that something like gamma, if I go super far in the money, it's pretty damn low. So I don't care. Gamma is a lower risk in that strategy. So I'm going to deprioritize gamma in the analysis. But let's say I want to make sure that I move one for one with the underlying. That means that if the underlying goes up a dollar, I want to go up a dollar. That means I have to pick an even higher gamma, like a gamma, or I'm sorry, higher delta, something with a delta of one. Or if I'm okay with an 80 cent to a dollar move, then I'll pick a delta that's 80. So based on the strategy that I'm running, I'm going to use the Greeks to help me conceptualize the risk that poses to them. One other example to help people um, understand this is if I'm trading zero DTE options, what happens to gamma as we get closer to expiration? Does anybody know? It increases. Bingo. So if I'm trading zero DTE options and I have an option that's anywhere near the money, I care about gamma. That's a risk. So I'm going to weight gamma more highly in the way I'm selecting my strikes. And again, depending on the strategy. So a lot of it comes down to understanding how the Greeks allow us to conceptualize the risk. People think that there's like a Greek that's good or a Greek that means that you'll be profitable. And none of that is the case. It just tells us how something is going to behave, ceteris paribus, other variables remaining the same. I think that leads into this this question here, but uh, there's a lot of stuff that you've talked about that if people wanted to have a better understanding of that, like, do you have any books or any other resources that you recommend for, for really like learning how to understand the Greeks or these different strategies or implied volatility or, or any of that stuff? Yeah, I think like my go-to book is Options as a Strategic Investment, and that's by Lawrence McMillan. That's definitely my go-to. Um, but part of it really like you can understand how the Greeks operate j just by going on Investopedia. Mm -hmm. The problem is I think people just gloss over it and they don't actually take the time to understand them and the implications of them, but to get better ideas of how the Greeks behave in different scopes, I definitely think options as a strategic investment is probably my go-to book. And I actually, let me look real quick. I think I have a video that walks through the Greeks in different, yeah, I have a couple of them, but 
because I mean, I even go into things like the second order Greeks. When we talk about the first order Greeks, which is, you know, what most people are used to hearing, there's second and even third order Greeks. So if you want to understand more about those, I think options as a strategic investment would be my go-to. All right. I'll make sure I put a link to that. Uh, send me the link for that uh, video that you mentioned. I'll make sure that gets included too. Mm-hmm. What about other, the, just more options in general, like understanding how the different strategies work and... Uh, that same book. So Okay. All right. So it's yep. catch all for all of it. Yeah. it's So the thing about options as a strategic investment is it's a, it's a big chunk. I'm looking at it. I literally keep it on the desk behind me because I, I like no shit reference it probably once a week. And one of my favorite things to do is just open up to a random page and just read it. But anyways... Mm-hmm. Um, it's like a textbook. So what you do is you read the first few chapters to understand the fundamentals of things if you're so inclined. And then from there, you just reference it. You'll say, okay, I'm looking for a directional strategy. Let me get some ideas. And then you'll pop in there and it'll help you with that. I think I think people get too wrapped up what I would consider option structures, which is a vertical spread or a diagonal spread. Those are structures. It's not, you know, it's a stupid verbal debate that happens all the time just about semantics. But it is an important differentiation because a a structure is just a series of options combined to call it a fucking name. But the strategy is how you choose to employ the structure. And I think that's important for people to to differentiate. And the the book goes through that. Excellent. Okay. Make sure I have a link for that in the episode description. Um, Lur, oh, God damn it! I keep wanting to call you by your Discord name, <laughs> Lucas. Uh, <laughs> you want to? Uh, I, I want you to ask this the the top one on the list here, the one that you weighted the highest, because I think that's going to be a good one. That should lead okay. us into a nice wrap up for this. Yeah, figured we'd save that for last because this is probably the meatiest question yeah, I would yeah. assume. But just you know, strategy development, which just kind of encapsulates finding a potential edge, or you know. How would you go about looking for an edge and then back testing? So using tools such as Python and like you mentioned, buying data, like how would you go about that and how would you use that data that you bought, um, you know, to back test and do everything that comes with that? Yeah, for sure. So strategy development is actually pretty simple, I think. And I use Stephen Covey's seven habits of highly successful people for the next piece on that, which is begin with the end in mind. What's the purpose of the strategy? The way that I view it is there needs to be a strategy that we deploy for a specific reason. Like I don't like strategies for the sake of strategies. It doesn't make sense to me. So what I mean by that is once you decide that you want to trade a bullish trade, okay, fine. When we think about different ways we can trade a bullish trade. We can buy stock, we can buy a call, we can sell a put. How do we differentiate between those? And that's really where it comes into play in my opinion. So what I like to do is begin with the end in mind, which again is from Stephen Covey. And I think I would start with creating a strategy that gives you the ability to take advantage of different environments, depending on what it is you're trying to trade. So if you want to trade directionally, you're going to need some directional strategies. The other overlay on top of that is volatility. So there are different strategies that I would trade if volatility is high or if volatility is low. Let's say if I'm bullish and volatility is low, I'm probably more prone to buy a call. 
if volatility, if I'm if I want to be bullish and volatility is high, I might be more prone to sell a put if I'm okay with capping the upside. So I would develop strategies, at least for me, that allow you to take advantage of both directions, so bullish and bearish, and then also overlay high and low implied volatility environments. So we should have a strategy that is bullish, high implied volatility, strategy that is bullish, low implied volatility, same thing for bearish. And then sideways, because the market, that's one of the most beautiful aspects of options, is the markets go through distinct phases where they can trend sideways for extremely long periods of time. And equity holders, they don't make any money there. They only make money in those instances if they're getting a dividend or something like that. So because of that, you can trade options to take advantage of that. So I think that that is, again, like a really effective way to build out a suite of strategies without getting too laden. Because before you know it, you're going to have the double purple zebra upside down koala bear that only gets <laughs> traded on a rising Jupiter Mercury retrograde moon on the third Friday every other leap year. You know they what I mean? Like it just don't becomes not planetary investing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they've been yeah, they've on, been man. featured on some pretty high uh, or important magazines. I swear, astrology has a has a positive expectancy. <laughs> and I, I literally say it all the time, man. Like if what whatever gives somebody positive expectancy, I don't care what it is, man. Run with it, dude. Like fucking do it. But yeah. So I think when it comes to strategy, that's how I conceptualize it, though. I want to take advantage of bullish, bearish, sideways, and then also volatility. So that's it. That's the way that I would skeletonize the strategies I want to do. And I would start codifying them in a trading plan, which is one of like the main things I talk about, which is the ugly side of trading, which is called fucking work because free money doesn't exist, unfortunately. My OnlyFans still isn't taking off. Um, but I think... <laughs> I think having a strategy for each of those scenarios gets you down the road. You create a trading plan to help you start codifying how you intend to actually create the strategies against those structures. And then you have a trading plan that you then assess the performance. Then when we're talking about finding potential edge, there's a few ways you can create edge depending on how you quant or qualify it. Meaning you can create edge via leverage, meaning you can beat the market using just leverage but you're not going to have um, risk-adjusted alpha. You're just going to have alpha, which is, again, that could be fine. I don't care. I'm not a fund manager. That's one of the cool things about being a retail trader. So for a good period, like in my early to mid-20s, I was levered pretty damn frequently. And it's because I didn't care about the volatility. I didn't care about having additional risk. I just wanted alpha. And it was one of the ways I was able to find it. You can find it via being really good at determining direction. There are directional traders that exist. It's difficult to do, but it's possible. Volatility trading, especially if you're trading derivatives, it's an important aspect to trade options is leveraging volatility. It's a little tricky to do that because to do it correctly you need to have an implied volatility surface model that essentially can compete with institutions. Because that's essentially what you're saying, is if you think you, you, can, you can find the variance risk premium more efficiently than the rest of the market, which is comprised mostly of institutions, means that you're doing it better than them. It's not to say that you can't. Again, I'm very against 
random self-constraining thoughts, but I am a probabilistic person and I think the probabilities for that are low. But there are plenty back of the napkin ways we can look for that via beautiful segue into backtesting. You can buy data. Again, if you're so inclined, I buy it from the SIBO. It's super expensive, depending on the time frame that you want to gain information for. Like for example, last year I just bought data um, one minute options data in the indices, essentially going back to the genesis of like SPX and whatnot. It was like $120,000. So Sheesh. that was, uh, that was one minute data with all the Greeks. So you don't need that necessarily. But my point being is you can buy data, uh, all different shapes and flavors, but the SIBO is where I get mine, at least as of right now. And it's always expensive, but you then can start analyzing it. If you're good at Excel, you could do it in Excel. If you're good at Python, you could do it in Python. If you're good in SQL, you could do it in SQL. Whatever data processing tool you want to use is completely dependent on your skill set. The only reason why I integrated Python is because I'm a fucking crayon eater. I'm an idiot. So I there's I didn't know how to use Python by myself, but I had a nerd friend that I played rugby with that was really good at that shit. So I said, yo, homie, I got some really boring shit. Can you help me be a nerd for a little bit? And he did. And that's essentially how I started learning Python. Now there's like unlimited resources. I'm sure figuring out how to use Python on YouTube will probably take you like two hours. But anyways, it's just some of that is a little more efficient for processing really large data sets, but that's it. That's actually uh, next month's roundtable topic is going to be using, uh, I think, talking about coding and Python and that kind of stuff. Good. Then I think you just classified as nerd 101 and then that's it. There you go. <laughs> I just bought like a $20 beginner class yeah, on go. Python just to get a, an introduction of some sort to it. Like, because I think I'm better off spending, you know, a couple of bucks to get me started somewhere opposed to ravaging the internet for or whatever I can find. But yeah, so I went into like a loophole and I did end up going on the CBOE and looking at the data, like how much would this cost to backtest, you know, whatever I need to backtest. And I'm like, yeah, I, I can't afford that. Well, there's there's other choices. So I'm actually an affiliate with Options Omega. They're just some friends of mine. They're cool dudes. I like them. Um, and they essentially outsource some of that. So they, they do have like back testing available they're expanding it so i like them but the thing is is you know back testing still only gets you so far and i think it's important to know that but nonetheless um i'll drop their stuff in here in case people are interested it's not it's not super expensive but like they they're outsourcing the cost which i actually think is really smart you know for people that don't want to spend you know, $100,000 on fucking nerd shit, you can buy it a little more cheaply. And I actually haven't found too many tools that I really like that much. So I, I do like them. I'm I'm not an affiliate for many things because I'm, I'm pretty selective about that stuff. But anyways, it is something I think people can look at if you don't want to outsource the data. But the other thing I would say is you can also just track the shit yourself, mm -hmm. right? Like get Excel and then on the day of, track what you want to track. You don't need minute greek data to find success like if you think that's where edge is you're looking in the wrong space anyways so i think there's an increasing level of fidelity i would go into depending on how specific you want to get with your edge i mean i can give you um simple ways to make money in the stock market one of which is to buy the s p 500 and come back in 15 years 
Right. We know that we yeah. know that fucking works, especially if your dollar cost averaging in that being the most important part that fucking works. So I think some people, you know, they start going too deep, too fast. And I would postulate what you think your potential edge is. Like I said, things like that show edge, being able to guess direction effectively, being able to price or at least find observations of volatility mispricing, i.e. CPI releases, earnings releases, things like that. Very observable because you can just, again, like I told you what I do with earnings before, you could do that. And that just takes time. I still do it manually as compared to importing it because I think too many people try to offload and automate too much shit too fast and they don't actually synthesize the real details of trading. That's one of the hallmarks of long-term successful traders is pattern recognition. The only way you get to achieve pattern recognition is by observing data sets over long periods of time, some of which data set could just be a chart, things like that. So I would just define first where you think the edge is and then find the supporting information to confirm or deny the hypothesis. I wouldn't go right out and you know buy one minute SPX options data for the past 40 years. It's fucking expensive. All right, we're starting to run a little bit long here. I think uh, it's probably a good spot to, to put a pin in things unless anybody else has something else they want to uh, try to squeeze in real quick. Do you hold your trades to expiration or cut for a certain profit percentage? And I guess... I think we kind of covered that in the beginning a little bit with uh, the the risk yeah. table that you mentioned. Oh yes, yeah, exactly. So so for that strategy, I use a risk table, and then for others, I just again analyze the the data. I usually start with the back test of data, but then I track my actual trades, and I use that to determine like where optimal profit taking is. But I'm essentially wanting to see. What is the max amount of profit I can capture before it turns to less profit? And what's the propensity for that to happen? And essentially, that's the overlay I use. Uh, Sam, you got anything else for us before we uh, wrap things up here? Uh, I think I'm good. Uh, I'm good for now. Uh, Perfect. Yeah, to be honest. It's a big... Yeah, it's a pretty big data dump, but... Uh. Well, I, I have one more that I want to cover real quick because it's a fucking pet peeve, which is this last one. Oh, no, not even that one. That one can go away. This one, which is, um, can you give an example of how you would manage or repair a losing position on an iron condor strangle or whatever the entire, like the word repair remains to return to a former state. There's no repairing a losing position. Again, this is the fucking ego, not wanting to accepting a loss. Are there ways to manage losing positions? Absolutely. And I think we talked about some of those before, but the more I can dissuade people from the idea of repairing a losing position, the happier I am. It's literally just because we don't want to face the fucking facts that we have a trade that is losing or not doing what we want. The better scenario there is accept it's doing what it is and then to manage it again, based on some of the stuff we talked about, but repairing stuff is garbage. Okay. That was my question. And then I'll, I'll sear that answer into my head. Oh yeah. That's what I'm <laughs> yes. talking about. I think we could all benefit from that. Just accept it and move on. Because how many times do you dig yourselves into a deeper hole trying to fix a mistake? Dude, it's it's again, it's insane just the how overwhelming the ego becomes in a lot of this stuff and how it subverts better decision making. It, it, it literally is wild to me. All right. Well, that sounds like a good place to put a pin in this. Uh, I'd like to thank everybody who stuck around to the end. Bit of a longer episode this time, but a lot of great topics I think we covered. 
Uh, I'd like to thank Sam and Lucas for for joining us for this and uh, preparing all the questions. There's a lot of great stuff that we covered. And also thank you, Eric, for for taking the time. I know you put a lot of effort into preparing for this. And I'm just saying that for the microphones. (laughs) I know you know all this by heart. (laughs) We'll be back soon with another exciting episode. But until then, I'm just going to say goodbye. Bye, everybody. All right. Bye. Eric, where's my bye? Bye. There it is. All right. Two Bulls in a China Shop is an entertainment program, and all thoughts and opinions expressed in the show belong to the hosts and not of any company. They are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual or on any specific security or investment product. It is only intended to provide entertainment about stocks and the financial industry of trading. If you make trades based on what you hear in this show, you assume all risks for those trades.